Anything else? Take your Bibles with me this morning and turn to a very familiar passage of Scripture. Turn with me to Psalm 32. Psalm 32. I've entitled this message, The Blessed Sinner. That seems like something that doesn't go good together. The Blessed Sinner. They seem to be contradictory one to another. A sinner blessed? Play. Blessed by, based on what ground, what hope, what cause. And see, here's the thing, and I, and I think about these things all the time. You know what I mean? I, I know that most men in religion that have taken the role or office of a pastor, they seem to think that somehow or another they have obtained a level of obedience in their own life that somehow makes them free from sin. And that's just not the case. I tell you, one thing that, that your pastor understands, as well as you, I hope, understand in your own life, I am a sinner, pure and simple. I don't say it to pat myself on the back, and it's certainly not I'm filled with pride over the fact that I'm a sinner. But it's just a reality. I, I, I like you, I deal every day with this, this certain knowledge. I know that in me, that is in my flesh, dwells no good thing. The will is present with me, but how to perform that which I desire, I don't find the strength. The good that I want to do, now think about this, this is Saul Paul, the Apostle Paul. The good that I want to do, I don't do. And the evil that I don't want to do, that's exactly what I find myself doing. And you say, well, it sounds like that's throwing the blame off of me. Just, it's just what we are. God, listen, God is not improving this flesh. Whatever you are now, this, this old fleshly thing that we live in, this old carnal nature that we carry, we're going to carry it to the bitter end. You hear me? We're going to still be filled with unbelief and doubt and worry and anxiety and fear. And God help us if we get to the end of our days where we're facing that last crossing across Jordan that He will comfort us in that hour. He might not be pleased to do so. But may we by His grace see and know what He's told us in His Word and written down plainly for us in His Word. Because you think about this this morning. For those of you here today that know yourselves to be sinners, burdened with the guilt of sin and continually struggling and with its constant assault on every, from every front, what would you give this morning? What would it mean to you to know beyond a shadow of a doubt based on God's testimony? That your sins are actually forgiven. All of them. Past, present, and future. That the, the guilt of sin, the penalty of sin, and the condemnation of sin, your sins, past, present, and future, are forever removed. Wouldn't that be good news? Or would you rather see a sermon and hear one. Huh? Well, I tell you, the, in these words, inspired by the Holy Spirit, King David declares to us what he had been taught concerning this comfort and truth of one important doctrine that this religious world misses, the non-imputation of sin. 
God was in Christ reconciling the world unto himself, not imputing, not charging their trespasses unto him. He also wrote about the assurance of God's expressed testimony concerning the forgiveness of all his transgressions and the covering of all his sin, past, present, and future. Let's read our text. Look here at verse 1 of Psalm 32. Blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man on whom the Lord imputeth not iniquity, and whose spirit is no guile. May the word of God be our God, not what we feel, not what we think, not what somebody else told us. What's God's word telling us by the mouth of his servant, King David? Now, you listen to me closely. I know that most people in religion today, they're absolutely clueless. You hear me? They're clueless. My friends, family, and foes as well, they are clueless when it comes to this truth of imputation. They don't understand it. Many of them don't even think it's in the Bible. The nominal professor, professor of religion, they're content in their ignorance of these important and essential truths of the faith. Most of them think all that matters is that they've made a profession, they've accepted Christ as their personal Lord and Savior, they've walked an aisle, they've been baptized, and they're their members of some particular religious organization. But listen to me. Ignorance of the truth of what David wrote here. Ignorance of it. Which the Apostle Paul clarifies where we read there in Romans chapter 4. We're going to end up in some of that this morning toward the end of this message. Ignorance of that is evidence that you at this particular point in time do not possess true God-given faith. You hear that? If you are ignorant of the non-imputation of sin and the imputation of a righteousness you had no part producing, right now, as you see it, I don't care how moral, sincere, dedicated you might be, you at this particular point in your life, you do not know the true and living God. People say, well, that's not fair and that's mean. I'm telling you the truth. This ain't about being fair. And it's certainly not about, about your feeling. I could care less what you think about me. For me saying, I don't care if you think that I'm mean. What would be mean to let you continue in your lie? That would be the lack of love. I'm telling you, telling you the truth is the greatest act of love you can ever do for anybody. Be honest. When Paul wrote the letter to, to Titus, listen to how he opens it. Paul, a servant of God, an apostle of Jesus Christ, listen to it, according to the faith of God's elect and the acknowledging of the truth which is in Christ Jesus, which is after godliness, in hope of eternal life, which God that cannot lie promised before the world began, but hath in due times manifested his word, how? Through preaching, which is committed unto me according to the commandment of my Savior, God our Savior, to Titus, my own son, now listen to this, after the common faith. You hear that? The common faith. Grace, mercy, and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ our Savior. 
This truth that I'm trying to talk to you about this morning is not something new that your pastor came up with. And it's not something new that some pastor came up with sometime in the past. Folks, it's the truth of the common faith. The faith of God's elect. That faith which Jude said to contend for the faith once delivered unto the saints. Now there are several truths that we can gain from these opening verses of this psalm written by God's servant King David. And I don't think I'd be wrong by telling you in the beginning that David's thankfulness for these wonderful truths, you know what it came from? It came from a, a, a constant awareness his own sinfulness. I know that because at the end of his life in 2 Samuel chapter 23, you know what he said? He said, I'm, I'm not what I should be. I'm not what a king should be. I hadn't served like he demanded that a king serve in righteousness and holiness and peace, truth and sincerity. He said, but I know this, but I have an everlasting covenant ordered in all things, ensure. This is all my hope. This is all my joy. This is all my salvation. What? That everlasting covenant. It didn't depend on how he felt. That, that's what most of us think. We think, we, we, we base our relationship to God on how we feel. This ain't about how we feel. It's how God views us. How he sees us. And see, that's the thing. He, David was constantly, look down at verse 3 through 5 of this chapter. He was constantly aware of his sinfulness with Bathsheba. And I guarantee you, I bet you he never forgot every moment of his life that he put her husband to death. How do I know that? Look at verse 3. When I kept silence, my bones waxed old through, through roaring through my roaring all the day long. For day and night thy hand was heavy upon me. My moisture is turned into the draught of summer. I acknowledged my sin unto thee, and mine iniquity have I not hid. I said I will confess my transgression unto the Lord, and thank God for this. Thou forgavest the iniquity of my sin. David knew he was a sinner. He was King David, the apple of God's eye, a sinner saved by God's grace. Pure and simple. So here's the first thing I want us to see this morning that we can learn from verse 1 and 2. This is what we learn. That we're sinners. And that we owe a debt to God's law and justice that we cannot pay by whatever aid or whatever agency even assisted by God the Holy Spirit. Not by works of righteousness which we have done. David declares, he says, blessed is the man. That word man's a generic word. So it includes both men and women. He said, blessed whose, whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. And I thought about this a long time. And I want you to follow this, this thought out, this reasoning out to its logical conclusion. If the one who's blessed has to have their transgressions forgiven and their sins covered, what does that insinuate that they are? 
Blessed is the man whose transgressions forgiven, whose sins are covered. If a man keeps the whole law and breaks it in one point, what is he? He's a transgressor. Paul wrote in Romans chapter 3, For all have sinned. How many? All have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Like the unregenerate, moral, sincere religionist who seeks to justify himself before God like the Pharisee, in our Lord's parable of the publican and the Pharisees, those born of God, you know what? They readily acknowledge and they're keenly aware of their sinnerhood. David said in Psalm 51, Against thee, thee only, have I sinned and done this evil in thy sight. And thou mightest be justified when thou speakest, and be clear when thou judgest. Behold, I was shapen in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. You're not saying his mama was a, had him out of wedlock. What's he saying? My mama was a sinner, and since I was born of a woman, what am I? I'm a, there's, the wicked go forth from the womb doing what? Speaking lies. He said over in Psalm 130, verse 3 and 4, But there is, if, if, if the Lord, if thou, Lord, shouldest mark iniquities, O Lord, who shall stand? But there's forgiveness with thee. What forgiveness with thee? For what? Our sins. That thou mayest be feared. Over in the New Testament, the Apostle Paul said the same thing. He said, this is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptation that Christ Jesus came in the world to save what? Sinners of whom I am chief. And our Lord Jesus Christ, the Prince of Peace, he made it absolutely clear, did he not? He said, I came not to call the righteous. And we know according to what he teaches us through Paul, there's none righteous, no, not one. So what he means when he said, I came not to call the righteous, he's saying those who think they're righteous. But what did he come to call? Sinners. What did he come to call them to? To repentance. If you're a sinner, this word blessed applies to you. It's yours. If you see yourself as a sinner. But if you don't see yourself as a sinner, you know what? These words aren't for you. And I can tell you this much. The acknowledgement of one's sinnerhood is something the natural man cannot and will not ever do. The natural man receiveth not the things of the Spirit of God, neither can he know them for their spiritually discerned. It, the, your, your mindset will always be this. Well, I might have sinned, but I'm not as bad as one sin, ten million sins. You know what it's still required? Forgiveness. And there's forgiveness only one place. And it's not in you trying to make it up. Here's the second thing we gain from David's words. Our eternal blessedness, and I thank God for this every moment of my life, rests entirely on God's ability as well as his willingness to forgive our sins, our transgressions, and cover our sins in a way that honors his redemptive glory is both a just God and a Savior. Notice how he starts this thing off. Because it's important when you read these things. You see that word, it says blessed, it's in capital letters. But you notice those next three words after it? 
They're in italics. And then you see after the word forgiven, the word who and the word is, what are they in? They're in italics. So what does that mean? It means they weren't in the original. They were added, they thought, to make these verses more understandable to it. So really and literally these verses are blessed transgressions forgiven. You see that? Sin covered. This word that David uses, transgression in the original, you know what it means? Rebellion against God. Rebellion against God. And here's something that I discovered. This word forgiven, it has a very interesting meaning, particularly in light of Christ's work as his people's substitute, surety, and sin bearer. That word translated forgiven, it means to lift up or to carry or to bear. Lift up, to carry, or to bear. Isaiah used the same word. Listen to it. Surely he hath borne. There's the same word. That's Isaiah 53, verse 4. Surely he hath borne. In other words, lifted up, carried, or bore. What's he bore? Our griefs and our sorrows. Yet we did esteem him stricken, smitten of God. You think about this. Christ not only had the ability as our surety and substitute to bear our transgressions and sins, but he also had to be willing to do the task required by the Father. But David went further. He said this, who sin covered. That word sin refers to one's condition due to our sinfulness. That is to say, what are we? We're guilty before God. Our Lord said to, to Cain, he says, if thou doest well, thou shalt be accepted. But if thou doest not well, sin, what guilt, lies at your door. That word sin, it's the same word Moses used. You know what it referred to? It referred to the sin offering. This is it. But the flesh of the bullock and his skin and his dung shalt thou burn with fire. Where do you burn it at? Outside the camp. Where do you hear about that at? Where are we supposed to go? According to Hebrews chapter 13, we're to go outside the camp. Where's Christ at? Outside the camp. And he says you're to burn it without the camp. It is a sin offering. He said this in Exodus 29, verse 36, And thou shalt offer every day a bullock, a sin offering. There's the same word. For atonement. And thou shalt cleanse the altar when thou hast made an atonement for it, and thou shalt anoint it to sanctify it. And he said of Aaron when he was giving him the directions on how to clothe Aaron, he said this, And Aaron shall make an atonement upon the horns of it once in a year with the blood of the sin offering of atonements. Once in a year shall he make atonement upon it throughout your generation. It is most holy unto the Lord. So what's David telling us here? David's telling us that this blessed man is the person whose rebellions are borne by another 
and their sins, that is to say the guilt due to their sin, is covered. That word covered means to conceal or to clothe. He told, spoke of, of Aaron, he said, Thou shalt make them linen breeches to cover. There's this word, to cover their nakedness. From the loins even unto the thighs they shall reach. What does all that symbolize? This is what it teaches us. Christ alone is the one who lifts up our transgressions and covers or conceals our sin by covering us with what? His own righteousness. The Lord is well pleased, Isaiah said, for his righteousness sake. Not mine. He, Christ, will magnify the law and he'll make it honorable. He said again, to Isaiah, through Isaiah, I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul shall be joyful in my God, for he hath clothed me in the garments of salvation. Well, he clothed me. He hath covered me. You see that? We didn't ask for it. He covered me with the robe of righteousness. As a bridegroom decketh himself with ornaments, and as a bride adorneth herself with jewels. And what better verse than 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21? For he made him to be sin for us who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. Here's the third truth we learn from David's word. Every sinner for whom Christ is born or lifted up their transgressions and has concealed their sin by his perfect righteousness is their substitute surety. Now listen to this. They cannot nor will they ever have sin imputed or legally charged to them, ever. Folks, the non-imputation of sin spoken of by King David and reiterated by the Apostle Paul in Romans 4, it is an absolutely essential part of every true believer's comfort and encouragement and peace. You listen to me. It's, it's not in this thing a non-imputation of our sin and the imputation of Christ's righteousness. It's not that God's pretending that his people aren't something they really are. What are we? We're sinners. We cannot change that. We're still sinners in our own person. But what God done? God has, in his own will and purpose, through the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ, he has legally transferred the sins of his elect, all those that he chose in Christ in an everlasting covenant of grace. He transferred their sin to who? To their sin bearer. To the Lord Jesus Christ, their substitute. And he has by his perfect life and by his vicarious death borne all the guilt, all the penalty, all the condemnation my sins actually deserve. Everything that every sin this man will ever commit, where'd they fall? On him. You think about it. Let that sink into your mind. Not just what I did today back. Every sin. And you think about this. When he cried, it is finished, when law and justice received her full reward, folks, we were 2,000 years in the future. You say, well, he died for our sins up to when we believe. No, he died for all our sin. And that what Paul said in Acts 13, 38 and 39, be it known unto you therefore men and brethren that by this man is preached unto you what? 
an offer of forgiveness if you'll keep on keeping on? No. Preached unto you the forgiveness of sins. And by him, now listen, by him, that's by his power, all who believe, and that's the only way they can believe is how? By him. All believing are declared righteous from all things from which they could not be declared righteous by the law of Moses. That's good news to a sinner. See, David, what was he doing? He was looking forward. He was looking forward to the one who would fulfill the Old Testament types and shadows. That's why he said, blessed, is, blessed transgressions forgiven. Blessed sins covered. Blessed is the man to whom the Lord will not impute sin and whose spirit is no God. He was looking forward to Christ coming. We read that in Romans chapter 4 when David spoke of that same thing after the cross, after Christ came, he was looking back what had been accomplished and he says this and it, he tells us exactly what, da what David was saying listen to it even as David also described the blessedness of the man unto whom God imputes righteousness without works that sounds a whole lot different how did, how did Paul David say that blessed are they whose transgressions are forgiven whose iniquities are covered Blessed is the man to whom the Lord will not impute sin. See, it's a double imputation. It's the imputation of our sins to the substitute and sin bearer and the imputation of his righteousness where? To me, the sinner. See, it's, it's, this is the thing. It's not enough to be not guilty. Huh? He said, except your righteousness... Exceed the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees. You shall in no case enter into the kingdom of heaven. We have to actually be made or possess the righteousness of God in him. Huh? It's not our own righteousness of works. Even though it's done by us through the work of the Holy Spirit after conversion. And we do works of righteousness. Because he said, didn't he tell Titus, not by works of righteousness which we've done, but not even the works of righteousness. Those good works that are talked about in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8 through 10, that he's before of old ordained that we should walk in them. None of those things make up the righteousness that makes us accepted in the beloved. All of it is where? It's in the person and work of the God-sent Messiah, the Lord Jesus Christ. I don't think anybody ever put it any better than John Bunyan did in his little book, Justification by an Imputed Righteousness. Bunyan wrote this. He said, There is no other way for sinners to be justified from the curse of the law in the sight of God than by the imputation of that righteousness long ago performed by and still residing with the person of Jesus Christ, my Lord. That's why the apostle Paul and James and Peter and declared it to be what? The righteousness of God. But then one last thing, and we'll quit. Look at the last part of verse 2. And in whose spirit is no God. Think about that. Now, 
Transgressions forgiven, sins covered, God not charged. But no guile? No guile? Think about this. Having been thoroughly convinced to sin, King David sincerely confessed his sin and with true godly repentance, he did so without deceit and without any hypocrisy. King David, the Apostle Paul, and that publican in that parable, when they acknowledged themselves to be sinners, their faith, what was it doing? It was looking to Christ for pardon and righteousness. And it was from a heart that was unfeigned. That is to say, it was without hypocrisy, which is what that word guile means. Even though they were sinners by birth, by nature, by practice, and by choice, if we rest in Christ as our only hope and cause of salvation, resting in his righteousness alone, you know what? We ourselves are without God. Think about it, without any hypocrisy. Remember our Lord Jesus Christ, he was walking toward Nathaniel, and he saw Nathaniel. What did he say to Nathaniel? Jesus saw Nathanael coming to him and saith unto him, Behold, an Israelite indeed, in whom is no guile, no hypocrisy. Now let's think about this a second. When Christ made that statement of this man coming to him, who was a sinner, was Christ implying that he had never did anything hypocritical in his life? Was he implying that this man, Nathaniel, always loved God with all his heart, all his mind, all his soul, and all his strength, and he loved his neighbor, which included his enemy, as himself perfectly all the time? Is that what Christ was implying? I know he couldn't because why Solomon said this, For there is not a just man upon the earth that doeth good and sinneth not, including Nathaniel, including King David, including you and me. Well, how in the world do we interpret this? How do we understand what he means by this? He talks about these that are being without God. How can I gain any comfort from that? Knowing who and what I am. Knowing what I've thought, what I've done, the actions in my life. Well, who's Christ? Christ is God, is he not? And speaking as God, what does he do? He declares like we read in Romans 4. He declares the things that are not as though they are. Folks, the only one that has ever truly, totally been without any guile and without any hypocrisy is who? Christ. Remember what he said? Don't think I came to destroy the law. I didn't come to destroy it. What did I come to do? To fulfill it, including you are in my hypocrisy, our guile. He fulfilled all of it. So when Christ looked at Nathaniel, what was he doing? He viewed him in himself. He viewed him as one who would rest in and believe in and trust in and rely upon what the Messiah, who he was, would actually accomplish by his obedience unto death. And as Christ viewed him in himself, what could he truly say of this man? If Christ is without God, and I'm in Christ, if any man be in Christ, new creature, what are you? Well, I don't feel like I'm without God. I didn't ask you how you feel. Do you take God at his word? 
Abraham believed God. Didn't believe in him, he believed him. Believe what? That God was going to charge righteousness to him. A righteousness he had no part producing nor maintaining. And see, that's the thing. I, to, to end this, sum this thing up, I can say this. If we are in his son, by his grace, his sovereign, omnipotent, mercy and grace, you know what? We are as holy and as sinless and as accepted as his holy, harmless, undefiled, separate from sinners' son. How do I know that? As he is, so are we. We're in this world. Where is he? Accepted in the beloved. Seated at the right hand of the majesty on high. Where are we at? We're in him. We're in Christ. I don't know about you. That's good news. That's the best of news. And I that's the declaration of the gospel. What does it tell you? That God has in Christ purchased, provided, and delivers to his people, what? A salvation full and free with no conditions on them. May the Lord by his grace be pleased to show us ourselves as we are in ourselves. What? I, I, I don't ever want to lose sight. This sounds horrible, but... I don't ever want to lose sight of what I am. I always, every, every day that I live, I always think about those words, remember the hole of the pit from which you were digged. I can't change it. That ought to give us compassion to other sinners because you didn't do anything to dig your way out of this pit. He was merciful. He forgave your sin. But may he also by his spirit be pleased to show us who and what we are in Christ. In the good times, and when we're down at the bottom, where are we? Huh? We're accepted in the blood. I've, I've had so much flack over the years from one statement that I made years ago, and I'll make it again today. And it's just as truthful now as it was the first time I said it. When David signed that edict to send Uriah out to his death, and when he got Bathsheba pregnant, God's view toward him in Christ never changed. His love never wavered, not one time. People say, well, y'all are justifying sin. No, we're showing that God's merciful to sinners. God be merciful. Isn't that what that, that man said? God be merciful. Be a mercy seat. Be a propitiation for me, a sinner. Let's stand together and we'll be dismissed. Appreciate your presence. The Lord bless you and keep you until we see you next Lord's Day.